and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 170, Crusader Part 4, Rommel Rises to the Occasion. Last time, Operation Crusader was launched on November 18, 1941, with its first goal being the destruction of Rommel's armor, and second, to bring relief to Tobruk. Yet the first few days did not unfold as General Cunningham of 8th British Army had desired. Still, by the end of November 20th, three days into the battle, Gott's 7th Armor Brigade was just to the southeast of Tobruk, readying to shake the hand of General Scobie, commander of the trapped Commonwealth forces while the 22nd and 4th Armor Brigades were supposedly destroying whatever panzers there were further to the southeast at Gab Salih. Yet that last part was not the case. Gatehouse's 4th Armored had been pushed out of Gab Salih by the 15th Panzer Division. What's more, the 21st Panzer Division would be en route that night of November 20th to help finish off Gatehouse's tanks the next day. But now, even that was no longer the plan. Rommel had finally let himself see the situation, as it really was, by acknowledging that the larger enemy tank force was just outside Tobruk, at City Rezeg airstrip. So that was where the 15th and 21st Panzer Divisions would be sent the next day. As for the 4th and 22nd Guards Brigades, they could wait. Also during the night of November 20th, Scobie was readying the path his men would take when they broke out at dawn. Mines were found and cleared, as was the wire between them and the Axis forces. The last part to be undertaken, under the cover of darkness, was the filling in of the anti-tank ditch along their expected path. This was all done successfully, as the men were most assuredly motivated. To be sure, Scobie and his men had been practicing as much as possible their escape. But when they dashed out at 8 a.m. on the 21st, they found facing them not the Italians of the Bologna Division, but the Germans of the Africa Division. This change had been recently made as Rommel wanted his men to be the ones hitting to Brook there when his big attack started. As such, Scobie's success was limited. By noon, the Commonwealth forces had managed to penetrate some 4,000 yards into enemy territory. More besides, they now had some 1,000 prisoners, of which half were German. Impressive, but still, that was as far as they could get, without committing themselves fully to making for a complete breakout. The problem was, at this point, the escapees should have been meeting up with Gott's tanks of the 7th Armored. Yet around noon was when Gott radioed that he would not be able to meet them, as his hands were full, but more on that later. Scobie thought about the next phase of the plan, which called for his men to make for Ed Duda, about halfway between the Tobruk perimeter and the city Rezeg airfield. Yet that would mean running a German gauntlet, alone, without relief waiting for them at the end. That was asking too much of his men. Scobie held back, knowing that any escape would mean the loss of too many of his men and his tanks, of which he had about 100. No, now was not the time. As for Gott, 
It was too much for him to ready Ed Duda to receive the former prisoners and to keep up with what was going on at Gab Salih to the southeast. Accordingly, he put Brigadier Davy, commander of the 7th Armor Brigade, in charge of City Rezeg and the surrounding area. Davy's instructions were to clear the City Areg Ridge to the north of the airstrip by using Jock Campbell's support group. Then, ready to attack Ed Duda directly when the 5th South African Brigade showed up. This would give Scobie the clear path he needed. He, got would direct what was happening at Gapsali. And it seems that British Elan did exist. Campbell's men, really just 400 men from three companies of the King's Royal Rifle Corps and a fourth from the Rifle Brigade, attacked the Northern Ridge at first light. Perhaps catching the Germans off guard, these men captured twice their number in German and Italian prisoners. Now the way to Ed Duda was clear. Davy brought forward his tanks of the 6th Royal Tank Regiment of his brigade, secured the ridge, and then headed north to cross the road known as Trig Capuzzo, which runs all the way from Fort Capuzzo through Cyrenaica. But that was when Rommel struck. Being made aware of what was happening on the northern ridge, Rommel could guess the objective of the British tanks. So he ordered the 3rd Reconnaissance Unit of von Wachmar to stop the enemy tanks. With the 3rd Reconnaissance was a detachment of 88mm guns. As the Germans got into position first and would be assisted by Bakker's artillery group, currently stationed at Belamed, just to the northeast of where the British tanks would be crossing, both groups of gun, the 88s and the other artillery, opened up on the British as they cleared the ridge. Within minutes, three-fourths of their tanks were in flames. British Elan did exist, but so too did German professionalism. The remaining tanks retreated for the relative safety of the escarpment. It was at this moment when Davy was told that some 150 enemy tanks and 250 vehicles were coming at the airfield from the southeast. Now, this was too much for Davy, so he turned over local control north of the airstrip to Jock Campbell himself, then proceeded with his two remaining tank regiments, the 7th Hussars and the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment, to meet whatever was coming. It was, in fact, the whole of the Africa Corps. Earlier, back at Gab Salih, the Panzers had slipped away that morning, or rather, the 21st Panzer had. The 15th wasn't so lucky, as the British were loath to let them get away. Still, they soon departed, now behind the 21st. But as the 4th Armored and 22nd Armored Brigades gave chase, they not only found themselves getting the worst of it from flanking 88mm and 50mm guns, but soon each brigade ran low on fuel. The American Honeys had a short range, and the other tanks had not been topped off during the night, as their supply group could not find them. Still, to those back at 8th Army Headquarters, it looked as if the German armor was surrounded. The 7th was to their northwest, in their path near the airfield. The 22nd Brigade was to their south, the 4th cutting across their path to stay to their north. But HQ did not know 
of their fuel situation. The 4th and 22nd were left behind as the Germans raced to the northwest. Davy himself spotted the oncoming Germans southeast of him, but then noticed that his supply group was relaxing in a position between himself and the approaching Germans. He screamed for them to be radioed, but it was too late. The Germans came at them at full speed. Within seconds, the panzers and armored cars were mixed in with the camp, which left Davy unable to fire on the now-covered enemy armor and guns. Within minutes, the support group was decimated. Just after this, the 7th Hussars and the 22nd Royal Tank Regiments clashed with the 21st Panzer Division. It went as badly for them as it had for the supply group. The 7th Hussars lost their colonel and all but 10 of their tanks. Those 10 managed to get out and join the 4th Armor Group later that day, who were approaching more slowly to conserve fuel. As for the 2nd Royal Tank, it was engaging the now-arriving 15th Panzer Division, but fared no better. The German anti-tank guns were too much and too accurate. With both British brigades weakened, General Kuhl had the way to City Rezeg cleared, so he continued on, as Rommel had ordered him north to make sure Scobie did not escape. Yet there was one more obstacle in the way, Jacques Campbell's support group and his artillery. Cruel had the tanks refueled while he reconnoitered the area. The British infantry and artillery were at the eastern edge of the northern ridge called Point 178. Bombing raids were called down on Jacques Campbell's men, but clearly this was a job for the panzers. The battle that had been between British Enlau and German professionalism now switched to British anti-tank guns versus Panzers. Refueled, the Panzer Mark III's and Panzer Mark IV's headed out. But as Cruel knew, through clashing with the British previously, though his Mark III's could be taken out by the British 25-pounder field guns, the IV's were relatively safe, until they got within 600 yards. Yet the Panzer IV's, with their high-explosive shells, could stay thousands of yards away, and wipe out the gun crews. This they proceeded to do. The Panzer III's stayed back for cleanup duty. But too much time had been taken up with the fighting at the airfield and getting here to the north. Before Jacques' men could be completely wiped out, darkness came. Another item holding up Cruel was waiting on reports of the 22nd and 4th Guard Brigades. They had only been left in the dust. They were not destroyed. Once refueled, they would be a threat again. That night of the 21st, Cunningham planned for the next day. The problem was, he thought his side was doing better than it was. Exaggerated reports came in of destroyed panzers. Yet he knew enough of his own losses to think that Crusader was about to morph into an infantry battle. This dovetailed nicely with his orders that day for his infantry to move out. Freiburg's New Zealanders were ordered to advance and swing to the south of Sidi Omar and then to head north to come in behind Bardia, closer to the coast. Meanwhile, Mesevi's 4th Indian Division was to move due west and, using gaps in the Italian line, 
get in behind the Savona Division, readying themselves for an attack. With the 2nd New Zealand Infantry Division already moving north, Cunningham would alter their course. Having heard of the numerous destroyed panthers at City Rezeg, which was not true, the general would have the 2nd Division turn west once they went far enough north to gain the Trig Capuzo. Since they would be along an established road, the New Zealanders were expected to make good time in helping finish off the enemy near the airfield and help Scobie and his forces leave Tobruk. To complete this victory, Cunningham would have the African Brigade finish its journey north and also engage the enemy forces at the airfield. As the British were planning the next day's moves with over-positive information, the Germans were reacting dejectedly with their more somber negative interpretation. General Cruel interpreted his current situation near the airfield as a pending disaster. His panzers had not made it to Belhamid to join up with the infantry there to ensure the hands of Scobie and Campbell were not joined, though they had badly mauled the 7th and 2nd Royal Tank Regiment. And just before the sun went down, did the same to Campbell's men on the ridge. Also, Cruel saw himself as being surrounded, just as the British had. There were British forces at the airfield, though severely weakened, yet the South Africans were approaching. There was the enemy at Tobruk itself that seemed about to break out at any time. And, as mentioned, Jacques Campbell's men, though hurting, could possibly tie down the panzers until help arrived. With this perception, Corell used his own authority to pull back his forces to the northeast, back to his administrative base at Gampot, some twelve miles east of Belhamed. But then Rommel stepped in. For all of Cruel's negativity, and Rommel himself did not know the Panzer's successes that day, he, Rommel, was still obsessed with making sure Scobie and company did not meet up with another British force at Ed Duda, just five miles south of Tobruk. As such, he sent word to Cruel to have the 21st and 15th Panzer Division take a roundabout way to Belhamed during the night. That way, they would be in between Scobie's breakout point and the British tanks striving to assist them. Yet, as had happened so many times before, word got to Cruel too late. The 15th Panzer was already en route to Gambit. However, the 21st was caught in time, and thus made for Belhamed. Pausing for a moment, Cunningham was frustrated that he did not get his armor battle but had not given up hope. If he used the majority of the 8th Army to free the men of Tobruk, he would have that many more men and tanks to engage the enemy. What's more, attempting to free those men would cause Rommel to amass his forces, which could still give Cunningham the fight he sought. Of course, one must always be careful of what they wish for. As for Rommel, he was gathering his forces, specifically his armor, and fitting into Cunningham's plants nicely, as his main goal now was to keep Scobie and the men trapped at Tobruk. November 22nd started out quiet, as both sides were exhausted and their machines were in need of repair. The few remaining panzers near the airfield 
having run out of fuel the day before, were refilled, just in time, as the remaining tanks of the 7th and 22nd Armor Brigades chased them over the northern escarpment. Still, the various opposing forces were in such proximity that a clash was inevitable. Besides which, the British were massing their armor at the airfield, while Rommel would spend the day trying to deny the enemy this goal. The South African Brigade, given the order to move north, moved against the southern ridge at point 178, just to the southwest of the airfield, arriving there around 3 p.m., and engaged the infantry of Africa Division. Yet such was their dispositions that the Germans were able to quickly inflict 100 casualties on the charging South Africans. The attacking brigade then disengaged, having not taken the heights, and moved to a new position about two miles southeast from the ridge. There they could tend to their wounded while their serviceable vehicles yet still posed a threat due to their closeness. And having learned from the calamity suffered by the support group of 7th Brigade, the South Africans kept their supply group to their south, further away from the German guns on the southern escarpment. Some three miles, or 4.8 kilometers due north of the airfield, was Belhamed, where the 21st Panzer Division had traveled to the night before. In between them and the now British-controlled airstrip was a rise on which sat von Ravenstein's infantry and Bacher's artillery. They were given the 21st Panzer a chance to look over their armor and safety as they were to attack that afternoon. Rommel had showed up at Belhamed around noon and told Cruel that something had to be done to stop the British from gathering their forces at City Rezeg airfield, because once they did, they would make for Tobruk and free their comrades. The attack plan, drawn up by Rommel, would have the 21st Panzer Division's infantry attack due south, coming at the airfield from the north, with Bacher's artillery. Meanwhile, the 21st Panzers would dash to the southwest, past the end of the northern escarpment, and hit the airfield and Campbell's support group on the ridge from the west. If the attack worked according to plan, the panzers would be coming in with the sun behind them and in the eyes of the British gunners. The attack commenced on time. The 21st Division's infantry charged south, but were held up by Jacques Campbell's guns. The British armored brigades, just south of them, were hoping not to have to get involved as they were planning the escape of the Tobruk troops the next day. But suddenly, out of the west, and out of the blue, the 5th Panzer Regiment rushed onto the airstrip. The 7th Armored, what was left of them, jumped into their tanks. The remains of their support group manned their guns and turned them west. But it was too late. The 5th Panzer's turrets were already blazing, having surveyed the area as they came in. Within a short time, the rest of the 7th Armor Brigade's tanks were lost, as were many of the support group's guns. But the way the battle, short-lived as it was, played out, it was the Panzer's 50mm guns that did most of the destroying. The Panzer's mostly caused havoc. Still, the guns of the 7th support group blazed away as best they could. It was, once again, a battle of German tanks 
versus British guns. The 22nd Armor Brigade, on the eastern side of the airstrip, ready to help check the attack from the north if needed, now drove across the airfield to help the beleaguered 7th. Yet, as they came on, it was a simple equation of numbers. A brigade versus a division. The 22nd's tanks were reduced to smoldering wrecks in just a matter of minutes. But it was about to get much worse for the British position just north of the tanks, on the escarpment. Campbell's guns that had checked the Germans to the north now suddenly found panzers behind them. The guns couldn't turn fast enough, and there weren't enough of them anyways. Campbell's men were forced to surrender. Yet the British still had one last chance to turn the day around. Gatehouse's 4th Armor Brigade, which was to the east of the airfield, chasing the slower of 15th Panzer Division's tanks, they had been refueled later than the others, was ordered to come west and straighten out the confused mess. They did as ordered, but arrived late in the afternoon. By the time they got there, the area was covered with smoke. It was impossible to tell who was who and who was where. And though late, the 4th's appearance did startle the 5th Panzer Regiment, who had, besides, just run out of ammunition. Gott used the lull in the fighting to pull together what was left of his command south of the airstrip, as they joined the South African Brigade, who were themselves about three miles south of the southern escarpment. Gott used the relative safety of his new position to count his remaining tanks, which numbered 144. His 7th now only had 10 tanks, the 22nd had 34, and the 4th Armored, having come late to the battle, still had 100. Most of these were the American honeys. General Cruel did the same thing, and reported to Rommel that he ended the day with 173 tanks that were battle-ready. And yet the travails of November 22nd weren't quite done with the British forces. After the sunset, the 15th Panzer Division, which had been ordered that morning to help in the attack, arrived just north of the southern escarpment, from the east, and right into the bedded-down camp of Gatehouse's 4th Armor Brigade. Gatehouse himself was further west with Gott to plan out the next day, but it was obvious now that he would not be able to rejoin his men. The 15th Panzer and the 4th Armored cautiously dueled, but then the Germans pulled back, but not too far. They would come again with the rising sun, and the 4th would have to face them without their commander. However, that day, November 22nd, was not a total disaster for the British, if looked at from a certain point of view. At Tobruk, Scobie had managed to firm up his salient outside the enemy's perimeter. Also, the New Zealanders had captured Fort Capuzzo, then went north and now held the road, the Via Balbia, behind or to the west of Bardia. Its water supply was now cut. Having achieved this, Freiburg moved westward with his 4th and 6th New Zealand brigades along the Via Balbia, close to the coast, while the 1st Army Tank Brigade paralleled them to the south, along the Trig Capuzzo, which would go through the area between the northern and southern escarpments near the airfield. 
The 5th New Zealand Brigade was sent to Zidi Aziz to keep an eye on Bardia in case the enemy there tried to break out. Yet they would get no help from the Savona Division along the main defensive perimeter as the 4th Indian Division had thoroughly penetrated their line, stationing themselves within, hoping to finish off the Italians the next day. Back at 8th Army Headquarters, Cunningham and his staff were elated by the day's events, mostly because they did not have complete or up-to-date information from Gott. To the leader of 8th Army, it seemed that, indeed, this was now shaping up to be an infantry battle, and he had more men. The New Zealanders would head west, the South African Brigade would come north, and with his forces already at the airfield, they would destroy what enemy tanks and men were there and punch a hole into Brooks' perimeter, so Scobie's forces could then be unleashed to help finish off Rommel's men and retake Cyrenaica. Cunningham went to bed that night, confident that the next day, November 23rd, would see the British-led forces not only securing Egypt, but begin the great chase as Rommel ran pell-mell back to Benghazi, and maybe even further west, all the way to Tripoli. As for Rommel, he too was confident of the day's events, as his assessment was based on reports from Cruel and his intelligence staff. Surely the British were suffering and had lost the initiative. It would be the axis that determined tomorrow's events. So Rommel issued the following orders. On 23 November, Panzer Group will force a decision in the area southeast of Tobruk by means of a concentric attack by the Africa Corps and parts of the Corps Gambera. Rommel wanted the Africa Corps to push south, while the Italian Mobile Corps came north and into the rear of the 7th Armored Division from their position, 15 miles or 24 kilometers further south at Bir el Gubi. Yet again, these orders came too late. Still, Cruel anticipated his bold master and issued his own orders. Knowing von Revenstein's infantry was spent from the day's fighting, Cruel ordered the rested and refueled Newman Silkhaus 15th Panzer Division to leave their area, just northeast of where Gott's remaining 7th Division was, and swing around and hit them with General Gambaro's mobile force. They would also be joined by the 5th Panzer Regiment, which had already taken out so many enemy tanks on the airfield before they left that evening to go back to the north. As the British were driven north, they would run into the deadly accurate guns of von Ravenstein, who would be reinforced by the infantry of the 21st Panzer Division and their guns. Adding to the armored push from the south, which was the hammer to the infantry's anvil, would be the Ariete Armored Division, again south of the airfield. The remains of the 22nd Brigade, the 5th South African Brigade, and Gott's 7th Armored Division in general, would be overwhelmed, pushed to the north, and then annihilated by German guns, if they did not surrender. Either way, Scobie would not find the waiting hand of Gott, but rather the massed armored might of Rommel's forces who would then push him back into Tobruk before they took the entire port city and imprisoned all of Scobie's men.
Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 171, Lenin Comes Home. Last time, Stalin had just reached St. Petersburg, or Petrograd, as it had been changed during the war in March of 1917, to start his life afresh. The entity that strove to keep him and others like him subdued and out of the way was no more. But Stalin wasn't the only man who had been hunted for the last 17 years. So too was the 47-year-old Vladimir Yulyanov, a.k.a. Lenin. He was still getting over the happy shock of the Tsar suddenly being out of power and the country's and his political party's potential. The average Russian felt the same way, though the Great War was still going on and Russia was still in it. Many people gave voice to their thoughts that now anything was possible. Yes, there was still misery and hunger, but there was also now hope, vague though it might have been. And because Russia was at war and still had to feed its people, those problems still existed, and there was now no organization to address them, for the most part. As hard as things had been for the masses, they were about to get a lot harder. What the euphoria was conveniently covering up was that, just because one system of government, though tyrannical, was gone, that did not mean another one, hopefully more humane, would automatically arise, as all Russia was about to find out. Still, a provisional government arose to attempt to steer the ship of state. But not only did it not have the authority, there was no higher power to give it authority, that body soon found itself to be just one of many to spring up. Many people, not just the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, the other Soviets, saw this as their chance to gain power and to look out for their own. But what they did not count on was the Russian army itself rising to attempt to put organization to the chaos that now wove its way through the country. That the people did not think of the army in this light is rather confusing. Some 15 million men had been called to serve. Some 6 million of them were now at the front. The rest were spread throughout the country in almost every urban center of size. And suddenly, the vast majority of them were now political. But at this moment, when the people were looking to their future, they did not speak or think as Marx had predicted. They did not think of class though somehow that February, which saw the end of Nicholas's power, would end up being called a bourgeois revolution. Instead, the average person spoke of pain and hunger and those that had inflicted that pain. The average person who had been suppressed, as had their family for generations, now spoke of revenge. Yet it would be Russia's military, with all its advantages of organization and discipline, that would overwhelm all those competing for power. As for the provisional government, the list of gestures they got wrong in trying to win the masses to their side is too long to mention here. Suffice it to say, using the Tsar's eagle without a crown, using the national anthem, God Save the Tsar, just with different words, did not strike the right note with the people. They wanted a complete change from how things had been, and why wouldn't they? There was no freedom, and now there was little bread. 
There certainly wasn't security with the Germans to the west killing many Russian soldiers and gobbling up vast tracts of land. No, those of the provisional government were mocked, as well as all those of the bourgeoisie. Anyone who is considered educated, anyone who owned land or a factory or even appeared to be well-fed were open to ridicule and street violence. As much as the provisional government's propaganda did not turn the people to them or inspire them to support those now in power, the messages and imagery of the leftist rebels certainly did. Soon, red flags and red slogans could be seen and heard in most cities. It was that spring of 1917 when the hammer and sickle symbol first appeared and captured the hearts and the minds of many. All power to the Soviets was a constant chant, even though many of the peasants did not know exactly what that meant. They knew enough to know it was not for the Tsar or the bourgeoisie. It was for the people. It was about the people. It was about the average person having some rights, some say in how things were done. The people were for, because now they openly could be, socialism. Yet it wasn't the Bolsheviks that created socialism in Russia, nor made it popular now. It was the people's desire. However, Lenin would quickly seize the initiative and make socialism and Bolshevikism synonymous. As for Stalin, the part that he played in this revolution from March to November is not clearly known, as in there are no records of his activity. As Nikolai Zokhanov put it, a chronicler of the events, Stalin was a gray blur, emitting a dim light every now and then, and not leaving any trace. There is really nothing more to say about him. This should come as no surprise. After all, the Bolsheviks were not in power, free to do as they pleased. The man himself had spent the last 17 years covering his tracks, attempting to do the unexpected, whether in his political or personal life, as he had abandoned so many people and offspring, as we have seen. The truth was that Stalin was there in Petrograd, in the thick of things. His mentality, his personality, and desire for power would not allow him to be anywhere else or do anything else. He was there during the early days when all the Bolsheviks had was propaganda. He was there among the inner leadership circles of the party. As their activity seemed to be building up towards something more concrete, Stalin was in the middle of that as well. Basically, the reactionary, the revolutionary that was Jugashvili, was in his element. All things were possible, which is what he had always wanted, as he saw himself better and smarter than most. The man was a blur of activity, indeed, always giving speeches to crowds or to the party, or, when not speaking, writing, always writing, as if to make up for the three years of silence out in Siberia. Stalin stressed that now was the time for the Soviets, the left-leaning groups that only wanted progress for the people. Yet, to Stalin and Lenin, the Soviets meant the Bolsheviks. As everyone and every political group struggled to carve out for themselves a place in this new world, there were those trying to revive the institutions that made a government or daily life possible in the city. And, ironically, those that strove to help their comrades were noticed 
The people did not want another dictator or oligarchy, but they did want a savior. The problem was how to tell the difference between the two. And yet, if a person or a group were going to get things running again, they needed the people's support. Yet, those very souls were warily on the lookout for any entity trying to gather power. It would be this ironic watchfulness that would allow the Bolsheviks to rise. After all, they weren't putting up a supposed strongman. They didn't order people about with guns. No, they spoke of the people and their rights and their futures. So, when Supreme Commander General Kornilov spoke out against Lenin and his party, the people ignored his warnings. They were wary of the messenger, not of his message. But for all this, there was still a war on, and Russia was in it, at least technically, which makes the following political missteps that are about to take place all the more pathetic. The basis for the provisional government was that Nicholas II had promised to abdicate and let his 13-year-old son, Alexei, reign. Meanwhile, Grand Duke Mikhail, the Tsar's brother, would act as regent. Pretty straightforward. Nicholas would still be a man of means, and his son would rule. The Romanov line was protected. But then the Tsar had another long talk with Alexei's doctors or perhaps the other way around. And again, he was informed that hemophilia was not something that could be cured or the child would grow out of. What's more, once the regent and czar were in place, Nicholas would have to go into exile. It was the only way the Duma could use the boy czar and rally the people. They would be given their figurehead, but would have elected men representing them. Yet this was all too much for Nicholas. Not the Tsar, but the father. To be away from his son? Unthinkable. So he withdrew his son's right to take his place. He was still the Tsar after all, and instead decided his brother Mikhail would rule outright. But these last two steps were illegal. More besides, no one had asked Mikhail how he felt about ruling over a crumbling dynasty. So the question was put to him on March 3rd. Yet, taking the advice of Alexander Kerensky, a left-leaning Duma deputy, the would-be czar renounced everything. The upshot of all this was, Nicholas was on his way out. The generals had already agreed to that. But there would be no replacement. Russia now became a de facto republic, through the back door. Still, the niceties had to be observed. The provisional government wrote up a document that let Mikhail transfer his powers, that he never had, to them. But as murky as things were, they were about to become more so. Between March and August of 1917, the Duma did not meet. Duma members did, as did the state council, the upper house, as did the provisional government, as did members of the foreign office, as did the council of ministers. So, who was in charge? The best answer was Pavel Milukov, head of the foreign ministry. It was he and the provisional government that would not allow the Duma to convene. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. 
Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. To be sure, the provisional government was attempting to get the country moving again. It promised the people that there would soon be fair and secret voting, that Russia would be governed and not ruled, and those that governed would be elected. It also promised not to use the war as an excuse not to bring a vote about. Yet that very vote did not take place, not through the late spring or the summer, or the beginning of fall. And right beside the provisional government were the Soviets, specifically here, the Petrograd Soviet. It attempted to answer the people's call, those being ignored by Milukov and his kind. Yet it could not. Its very own propaganda raised the people's expectations to such heights that no political body could have met them. The provisional government would only last 237 days, but during that time, it attempted not to be an executive or legislative body, but at the same time, ignored and fought against the Petrograd Soviet that was, in reality, an unrecognized legislature. With the czarist shackles thrown off, everyone spoke of freedom. Various territories, Finland, Poland, Ukraine, the Caucasus, they all told the world that they were now national units, not provinces, of Russia. But during that summer, as progress was not made, the people who had been enjoying their freedom now demanded firm authority. They discovered, perhaps too late, that freedom meant different things to different people, as laws, rights, and traditions were ignored and violated. With the situation turning thus, people started talking more of the 47-year-old General Kornilov, the Russian Army Supreme Commander. Yet there were those who turned to the 36-year-old Kerensky, Minister of Justice within the provisional government, who was also respected by many of the Petrograd Soviet. And whereas Kornilov had his hands full with the war and the now-political soldiers, Kerensky got to work by starting to reinforce some of the laws already on the books and re-imprisoning some of those released during the February Revolution. Yet peace was not found on the streets for the average citizen. So Kornilov's name stayed on many lips, and it seemed that there might still yet be, to the joy of some, sorrow to others, a military counter-revolution. Yes, it would be hard for the people, but it would go harder still for those not content to live within the rule of law, as the military saw it. Against this, and against practically every other group that wanted to be the ruling faction, were the Bolsheviks and their street gangs. Lenin's faction claimed to have some 25,000 followers, but truth be told, it was more like just over 1,000. But those of the Bolsheviks were focused, radicalized by Stalin's propaganda, and centrally located. They had members in most factories around Petrograd. The party's headquarters was in a mansion taken from a Polish-born ballerina, Matilda Kurenzinska, which was right across from the Winter Palace. Other Bolshevik strongholds were also well-placed, 
one near the capital garrison, and close to the front of the war. As to why the provisional government did not simply chase away the infiltrators and the many others who had taken over someone else's residence, that body had disbanded the police and the Ukranka back in March, partly because they did not trust them, but also to appease the people who hated both groups. While the Bolshevik thugs battled others in the streets, the elite of them, like Stalin, tirelessly got out the word that they were against the war, against the Tsar, and against anyone or any group that tried to oppress the people. And this well-crafted, persistent message resonated with the common citizenry. And then the provisional government gave Lenin and his people a great gift. Instead of listening to the people and the various factions, the provisional government attempted to win the people back by renewing the war against the Germans. In June, a large Russian army moved out, but was easily overwhelmed, with only massive casualties to show for it. This had the effect, along with Lenin's message of anti-war, of turning many people within the capital to the Bolsheviks. As for Lenin himself, still in Zurich, he desired to return to Russia and lead his party directly. And though, like everyone else, he had been granted amnesty, it still wasn't safe for him to travel through the front lines to return. His desire dovetailed nicely with Berlin, which had been helping every Russian revolutionary they could find, trying to get Russia out of the war. Going through intermediaries, it was agreed to send Lenin back to his country. So, he was placed in a locked train carriage, surrounded by the neutral Swiss, and driven through the war zone. The train left on March 27, 1917, and carried 32 Russian emigres, of which two were Lenin and his wife, and his one-time French mistress. If Lenin was worried about being branded a German agent, he didn't think much of it. Indeed, he expected Germany also to fall into their own revolution. Any records of him would be lost or burned. Lenin arrived at the Finland station in the Vyborg district to the northwest of Petrograd on April 3rd, where he climbed atop the train and spoke to the people about Russia's and the Bolsheviks' future. Already, as we have seen, the peasants were taking over the land of the gentry. Not to be outdone, the army attempted to codify this, hoping to win the people over to their side. But the Bolsheviks, at this point, had already established a reputation concerning what they would do for the people if they came to power. In other words, the army's message was coming in a very late second. The provisional government brought up the rear with their promises of land redistribution, but only after, they claimed, the constituent assembly met. Yet that promise had been lingering and would linger on until it was too late. Lenin's organization, even from afar, and Stalin's presence in the capital had done much to establish their party as of the people, for the people, and the Bolshevik cause.